Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Acts in the New Testament to chapter 21. We're going through the book of Acts chapter by chapter and verse by verse, taking it a story at a time. We're in chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. The topic, Paul takes a series of cruises to return to Jerusalem and is warned along the way that chains and tribulations await him upon arrival. The title of our message, Cruising for a Bruisin'. Beginning in verse 1, now it came to pass that when he had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. When we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Father, we as always thank you for your word. We also always ask for your Holy Spirit to come and be our teacher because we want to understand more than the text in its context. We want to understand it in the context of our lives. And for that, we need you to make application. We need your word to come alive, something that no man can do, something that has to be done supernaturally. We trust that you will do it because you've promised you would. Jesus, you said you'd be where your church gathers together going from heart to heart, ministering from life to life. I pray that we would sense and feel that presence today in a real and rich way, preparing us, Lord, for what we're going to hear and for what we're going to say to people about what we hear. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Someone was describing the courage of first responders to a crisis situation. They said that first responders are, and I quote, running towards danger while others run away from it. All of us who run from danger appreciate and salute those who are trained to run towards it to help others. I don't think it cheapens the phrase to apply it to the Apostle Paul. Once he decided to return to Jerusalem, he was running towards danger. In chapter 20, he said of his return, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. 
In chapter 21, we hear two of those warnings, one from a group of believers in the city of Tyre and the other from the prophet Agabus. The believers tried to talk Paul out of going up to Jerusalem. He remained resolved to go. The question we have to ask ourselves is this, was Paul right or was he reckless in running towards danger? The answer has to do with his love for Christ and for Christians. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, love for Christians is your rule of life. And number two, love for Christ is your overrule of life. First of all, in verses 1 through 12, love for Christians is your rule of life. The highlights of Paul's Mediterranean cruises were the moving and emotional meetings that he had with believers all along the way, many of whom were complete strangers to him until they met him uh, for the first time. Let's feel the love as we cruise with Paul and his party from Miletus to Tyre. And so back in verse 1, now it came to pass and we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Departed from them looks back to chapter 20. Paul had an emotional meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus. They wept and they prayed and they hugged and they kissed as they knelt together there on the beach. The love continues at every stop of Paul's journey as he's headed to Jerusalem. The travelers took a couple of short coastal cruises on small vessels, and then they boarded a more seaworthy vessel to sail over to Tyre. And it reads like a travel log. You have to expect Luke to talk about visiting the famous Colossus of Rhodes. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It always seems to me like there's more like 21 wonders, doesn't it? Everything was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, but I, I guess that makes sense mathematically. Anyway, and why seven? Why can't there be eight wonders? I mean, how do you get off the list? Okay. Anyway, the Colossus of Rhodes was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, according to Wikipedia, and they're never wrong. Uh, it stood 100 feet high, making it the tallest statue of the ancient world at that time. Not a word about it or any other sightseeing until you get to Tyre. And then Luke notes that they found disciples and stayed there seven days. I'm told that the word used for finding is a word that would indicate an intense search. So they got off the boat and they embarked on an intense search to find Christians. No yellow book, no Google, uh, you know, nothing like that, and a big city. And so they, they started asking people in the marketplace, you know, uh, do you know where the followers of the way meet? Uh, do you know any Christian? And finally, after an intense search, they found the Christians. The site the travelers most wanted to see in every port, we might say, was the cross of Jesus Christ. Not a physical cross, but the effect of the cross in the lives of believers. They wanted always to find the local church. It doesn't preclude sightseeing or vacationing or anything like that. We know Paul, when he was in Athens, uh, he walked around Athens and saw all of the idols to the various gods. Uh, and so there's nothing wrong with that. But what Luke is highlighting here 
uh, is that what, what he really wants you to understand is that they, they sought out the church because that was the most precious site in every city that they visited. Every Bible teaching church is a precious site on earth. Visitors and members alike ought to be able to see Jesus and the effect of His cross in the lives of the believers in those gatherings. The church should be at once an oasis, a hospital, a library, a lecture hall, a music hall, a seminary, and anything else that an individual needs in order to see Jesus Christ in all of His glory. And so what a wonderful, beautiful thing the church of Jesus Christ on earth is. The seven-day stay was probably due to the ship being offloaded and then loaded. Of interest to us during their stay was that they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. The way it's worded, it sounds like the Holy Spirit was telling the disciples one thing and telling Paul something else. Since it's not possible for the Holy Spirit to contradict himself, we need a better explanation. We know up to this point that everywhere Paul went, the Holy Spirit was telling him through the gift of prophecy that danger awaited him in Jerusalem. But there is no indication in those prophecies that the Holy Spirit was forbidding Paul to go. The prophecies were a forewarning, but they were not a prohibition. The same thing happened in Tyre. Paul was being forewarned. The disciples tried to persuade him not to go. Why? Well, it's natural when you love someone. You don't want to see them harmed. And so when you hear, hey, if you go here, you're going to be harmed, what's your natural reaction? Don't go there. And so this is very natural. It would seem then that the statement they told Paul through the Spirit means one of two things. Spirit either refers to their own human spirit, which naturally wanted to see Paul kept from harm, or Spirit does refer to the Holy Spirit, but the disciples misapplied his warnings, assuming that the warnings were a prohibition when they were really just a forewarning of what awaited Paul. You know, I can understand that. Normally, when there is a warning sign, it's there for a reason, and, and you want to obey it, unless you're a driver in the state of California. How many times, and you know, it's nobody's fault, but how many times you've been on 43 and you've passed by those signs and it says flooded, and, and there hasn't been water there for six or seven years, you know, and stuff. Maybe it was flooded for 10 minutes, 20 minutes ago. I don't know, but I remember one time we were coming back from Southern California uh, in our Vista Cruiser, and uh, it was you know kind of winter. It was actually Christmas time. We'd visited my family, and we were, got up to the grapevine. And uh, there were all these flashing lights, and way up ahead I could see barricades, you know, across the grapevine. Uh, and and uh, I'm not one that's big on detours, especially in the pre-GPS days. Uh, and so, so we're driving along, what are we going to do? Got the two little ones in the car. And I noticed a lot of other California drivers were just going around the barricades and through. And I thought, well, this is California, and, and I'm, you know, that's what I'm going to do. No one's, uh, if somebody falls off the edge of the earth because the earth is now flat, then, uh, you know, I'll see them or something. And, and, and it reminded me, you know, unless in California, I think it's a law, unless there's a uniformed officer, you don't have to obey any traffic signs. Is that, that's the rule, isn't it? When I lived in the San Bernardino Mountains, I'm not encouraging law-breaking, believe me. Anyway, when I lived in the San Bernardino Mountains, uh, I drive like a grandma. 
or I guess a grandpa, which I am. But anyway, uh, when I lived in the San Bernardino Mountains, the thing you hated the most, and you, you mountain people will agree with this, the thing you hated the most was coming around the curve and they turned those horrible signs around that says, chains required. Now, I didn't mind putting on chains. In fact, I was a wizard at putting on chains. I put on chains for other people. I got so good at it. I mean, I could just whip those things on in no time flat. But I had snow tires on the front of my 1979 Honda Prelude, and I didn't need chains. I had front-wheel drive and snow tires. And so I really didn't need chains. And so I would just blow through those signs. Of course, everybody did, so it was no big deal. Until you got to where the chain control really was, the highway patrol was there stopping cars saying, you need chains. And then you'd say something like, I have no tires, and they would say, pull over and put your chains on or turn around, and you would. I remember one time I was coming home, I was like, I, I was like 100 yards from my house. It was a beautiful snowy night, snowstorm, nobody's out. You know that noise that snow You know, so no chains, snow tires are doing their job, and uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputy pulls up behind me, red lights me, put your chains on. Well, actually, I have snow tires. I don't want to tell you what happened after that, but I did put my chains on because uh, uh, you know, I didn't want to go to jail. And so, you know, so, you know you, mo- normally warnings are to be obeyed, and I would suggest strongly that you obey them. Uh, but, you know, so people were getting these prophecies, and they thought, well, why would the Holy Spirit be telling us this if not to warn Paul not to go, but Paul understood that they were just a forewarning and an encouragement to him. I mean, by this time, Paul had been shipwrecked, beat up. He'd been dead one time and raised from the dead. I mean, it, this, the fact that he might get arrested in Jerusalem wasn't the biggest problem. So in verse 5, when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. We knelt down on the shore and prayed, and when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. See how close they had grown to one another in so short a period of time. When you bring the whole family to say goodbye, you are really saying something about how much you love someone. Think again in terms of cruising the Mediterranean. If you had a camera and had already boarded the ship, you'd probably be clicking pics of the scenery. The most moving and memorable scene was the prayer meeting that was taking place on that beach between a group of Christians uh, who were involved in changing the world for Jesus Christ. Verse 7, when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. Again, they immediately got off the ship and sought out the local Calvary Chapel. They, uh, the word greeted is from a word that means to enfold the arms or enfold in the arms. And so we might say that they hugged. Whether they physically hugged or not, it, it talks about the, the, the uh, draw that they had one for another. Now, let me ask you a question. Say it's your first day of school or your first day on a new job. As you meet fellow students or teachers, do you generally hug them? Probably not, unless they're Christians, and then you might, because there is a love between strangers who are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's really kind of an amazing thing. It's a supernatural thing. You know, you're just out there in the world, and, you know, and, and all of a sudden you run into somebody, you, you, you kind of suspect that they're a Christian by the language they're using or not using, uh, as the case may be. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. And, and the next thing you know, it's like you've known each other forever. And you're more than likely to pray with one another and hug one another and, and just thank the Lord for that encounter. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, from a worldly point of view. 
You just don't do that on a regular basis, but it's the most natural thing in the world for Christians because we love one another. Verse eight, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Philip was one of the original seven deacons in the book of Acts. Philip the deacon had fled Jerusalem 20 years earlier. No matter, he became Philip the evangelist. He preached to Samaritans and a revival broke out. He preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, baptized him, and a church was found later in Ethiopia as a result. Eventually, we see that he settled down in Caesarea, but we can be sure he continued to exercise his gift of evangelist. Now, we talk a lot about spiritual gifts because we encounter them in the Bible and we are a body of believers, each gifted in a different way to minister one to another and out in the world. And one thing we learn here from Philip, the deacon who becomes Philip the evangelist, is that sometimes your gift can change or at least it gets exercised differently. I think this is an important point to just tuck in uh, the Wikipedia of your mind because uh, although I pray for you that you never have to leave Hanford, seriously, I mean, we have a, no, we have a great church, it's, and, and, I, you know, and, and I hope you never have to leave our church, but a lot of times people do. They leave the church, go to another area, or they come to our church from another area, and if you're not careful, you think you're going to pick up right where you left off, but I'll tell you one thing. Probably there's already somebody at your new church doing what you did here. The, and vice versa, and it can be a little bit defeating to people because we tend to think of our gifts as ours, and we forget that they belong to the Holy Spirit. He gives them to us, not for us, but for others, and so it's the most normal thing in the world that if I go someplace new or different, my gift is going to be either new or different, exercised differently, and it will help you make a transition. I get emails all the time from people who leave Hanford even they go to Calvary chapels. They say, we, we just don't like the Calvary. We can't fit in. doesn't seem like we fit in. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But in, sometimes the reason is we're just not as flexible as we need to be. We want to do what we used to do, feel what we used to feel, be used the way we used. And God wants to stretch us and grow us and say, hey, I want to give you some new gifts or use your gift in a slightly different way. And so it's a really profound thing to look at Philip uh, serving there in the church at Jerusalem, one of, the se- one of the original seven deacons. I mean, his name would be on a wall somewhere, you know, in, in the American church, you know, and, and stuff. And then he's forced out of Jerusalem, and so he becomes an evangelist and starts preaching wherever he is, and then we find him. And so, so it's, a, it's a great lesson for us to be flexible and let God use you in new ways. Even sometimes in your church, you have to be used in different ways as the complexion of the body changes or as different things happen. So let's just be open to the Lord. Now the meeting between Paul and Philip is really the showcase of love in this chapter. You see the supernatural love that Christians have for one another. It was on account of vicious persecution that was led by Paul when he was known as Saul that Philip had to flee Jerusalem. Two decades later, Philip shows hospitality to Paul, the man who ran him out of town and was trying to wreck and ruin the Christian church. It's a testament to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that these two men could come together after that long a time and see God's hand at work in both of their lives. Verse 9, now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. 
There are probably a lot of reasons why the Holy Spirit thought it important to record the ministry of these four unmarried ladies. One reason that I think is precious is that it certainly would encourage Paul. As I just said, 20 years earlier, as Saul, he had destroyed entire families, dragging husbands off to incarceration, splitting up children. Uh, it was terrible. He meant it for evil, but God used it for good. And he could see that now. Philip's family, proof of God's great overruling providence in all things. When he was Saul, before he was converted, ruining families, but God intervening, using that to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to strengthen families, to build his family, and now he sees all of that. Do you think Paul was an emotional guy? I mean, I don't like to get too much into ethnic stereotypes except Italian ones because they're all true, and I can, I can attest to that. A lot of people don't like stereotypes because they, they can be demeaning, and there are many demeaning stereotypes, but every Italian stereotype I've ever seen in the movies or on television, I have one of those people in my family. Uh, so I don't know, you know. So, but, so I don't want to make a Jewish stereotype, but we know that the Jewish people, especially in the first century, were a boisterous, uh, buoyant, emotional people singing and crying and laughing and doing all And I think Saul, or Paul rather, I mean, I, he, if, if we can pull out these ideas, the amazing meeting between him and Philip, who he had persecuted decades earlier, and Philip's daughters and all that, I think Paul was reduced to tears many times in his life. This tough soldier for Jesus Christ, who could bear beatings and shipwrecks and nakedness and robbers and who was killed once and raised from the dead and who was headed to Jerusalem to be a, arrested again. I think he blubbered like a baby a lot when he thought about the great grace of God and what the Lord had done for him. And, and um, it's, it, all of this is so endearing. Now it says in verse 10, as we stayed many days... A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Agabus is what I call a prop prophet. He liked to use props to prophesy. He didn't have to. I mean, he could have sat there and said, you know, the Lord is telling me right now, Paul, for you, that when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and turned over to the Gentiles. But he was a flamboyant guy. It was his style. He was old school when it came to prophecy. He was like one of the Old Testament prophets. You remember those guys? Isaiah walked around naked for a while. Ezekiel's laying on his side, making little models. All of those guys, they had crazy things. That Jeremiah, he had five or six different physical analogies he used in his prophecy. So Agabus is this prophet. They're at this meeting or who knows, maybe they're at a potluck and all of a sudden Agabus goes up and he grabs Paul's belt. And Paul's like, well, okay. And then Agabus ties his feet and then he ties his hands and he's sitting there and he gets into this flamboyant prophecy. And, and uh, it's just his style. I like it. Now, we mentioned spiritual gifts, so let me say this. The same spiritual gifts are exercised differently by different believers. Agabus didn't have to act like that, but he did. That was him. And so sometimes 
We need to be careful because there are weird things out there in the Christian realm, you know that. But a lot of times we get a little too narrow-minded and somebody has to teach just the same as our favorite teacher or they have to prophesy just like we think they should or whatever it is they do, it has to be just the way we have learned it. And, And we sometimes need to expand that a little bit because God has given us a great diversity in the body of Christ. And there don't need to be two of anybody, just one of you doing what God has gifted you to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's be open to and enjoy the diversity of the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit. Now we have the clearest statement of the kinds of warnings Paul had been receiving in every city, and we see the typical reaction of the disciples in verse 12. When they heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem of course they did because they loved him. And, and that's where this section ends on this note of how much they loved him. The night before he was crucified, Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Love for Christians was ruling the hearts of the believers in all of these cities. Love for Christians, Jesus said, is your rule of life. When in doubt about something or someone, defer to love. Bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. There's something else to note. The love of the believers did not persuade Paul from going, uh, from not going, excuse me. That's because another love was at work. And that's what we see in the closing verses, verses 13 and 14. Love for Christ is your overrule of life. Paul loved Christians. He regularly risked his life for them. He was running towards danger for the sake of his love for Christians by taking an offering from the Gentile churches to the struggling church at Jerusalem. Why then would he not listen to pretty much everybody who was telling him to abandon his trip? Because he loved Jesus Christ the most and it overruled every other love. His overruling love for Christ is the motive for what he said in verse 13. Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. From the time Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, Jesus told him he would suffer great things for his name's sake. Paul had already suffered more than uh, a man should ever have to suffer for the sake of the gospel. He knew his course. He was headed to Jerusalem. The Spirit was sending him there, notwithstanding the warnings that tribulation awaited him there. And so he let the love for Christ overrule anything else. Now, the word for breaking, he says, what are you doing breaking my heart? It actually means weakening. The concern of the Christians was weakening Paul's resolve to obey the Lord. He knew that the believers were sincere and cared deeply for his well-being, but they were focusing on his physical well-being. He had a spiritual well-being to consider, and that is to obey God and finish his course. And not just his spiritual well-being, but theirs. It would not do for him the apostle and example, to care more about himself than the ministry. It would set for them a terrible example. It would set the example of abandoning uh, God's will for your life in the midst of trials. If you're in a trial, just get out of it. 
Now, we can totally understand and identify with the concern of the believers because they loved Paul, but they should have let their love for Christ overrule their love for Paul. Their pleading was not helping him. It was actually hindering him. We would do well to pause and prayerfully consider our counsel and advice to one another. We know that the Christian life will involve trials and tribulations. We will encounter sufferings and afflictions. There will therefore be times we want to encourage a brother or sister in a way to avoid hardship. But God may have set that hardship in their path. It may be the very course that has been custom designed for their growth and God's glory. Probably the most common example of this would be somebody coming to you and just struggling at work, just having the hardest time at work. Uh, you know, maybe even for the sake of being a Christian or they're being persecuted or their boss is on them, whatever it is. I mean, we've all had problems at work, amen? And, and, and sometimes, you know, I mean, obviously, we live in America, you can change jobs, and sometimes that is what God wants you to do. But there is the possibility that sometimes when you're really struggling at work, that that is the trial that God has designed for you so that you will shine brightly in that dark environment. And so we have to be careful when somebody's saying, man, I hate my job and it's this and it's that. We can't just immediately say, well, then get another job because that may weaken their resolve to endure what God has called them to endure. So we just, all I'm saying is let's be careful and not flippant in what we say to others. God forbid I would weaken another brother or sister in their walk with Jesus Christ. Instead, we might have to encourage them to count it all joy in the midst of their trials or to remind them that in the world they will have tribulation, but be cheerful because Jesus has given us an ultimate victory. Or we might need to affirm to them that no temptation will overtake them except what is common to all of us and that God is faithful to not allow more than we can bear. It, it, it's not always the easiest thing to slap somebody on the shoulder and say, well, just hang in there. It's a trial. Get happy. I mean, it, it's a tough thing for two reasons. One, because you do love that person. And secondly, it's just hard to say things that are contrary to what a person is feeling. But the idea is that you love Christ more and he loves them more. And we want to be sure we're all in line with that. And so in verse 14, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. Paul would not allow himself to be persuaded because he was overruled by his love for Jesus Christ. The believers finally concluded what Paul already knew, the will of the Lord was going to be done, and it was. We'll see in subsequent studies, Lord willing, he is arrested in Jerusalem and he embarks on about a three-year trip under arrest to Rome as a prisoner. Our love one for another as a rule of life is how all men know we are Christ's disciples. And it's a sweet and beautiful thing. Our love for one another is at its highest and best when it is overruled by our love for Jesus Christ. Then it will want what is highest for a brother or sister, even if it is to endure hardship and count it all joy in the midst of their trials and tribulations. Let's pray together. Lord, we uh, thank you so much that you're always real with us. You always tell us the truth about the Christian life. Uh, it's glorious, but it's not without its 
trials and tribulations. And I pray that we would take many things to heart this morning, not just the things that we talked about, but things that you spoke to our hearts one by one individually, points that you made that weren't made here, Lord, but that you made. Overall, Lord, I pray that we would be thankful that you have shed your love abroad in our hearts, that we are able at all times to love with a supernatural, unconditional love because that's how you love us, and that we would hope all things, bear all things, endure all things, believe all things of our brothers and sisters in Christ and want what is best for them. But always, Lord, that love for you would be the overruling passion of life and that we would only encourage others to do what you want them to do, to be who you want them to be, to find you in the midst of their trials and troubles. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The guys are here to pray with you. Uh, so after the service, just come on forward and, and uh, get in line. Love to pray for you. Cafe is open, of course, for some fellowship. Bookstore, pop in there and, and uh, meet some folks. If there's anybody here this morning that you don't recognize, you're under obligation to introduce yourself to them and to show them Christian hospitality. Uh, tonight, we'll be praying, six, uh, 6 o'clock in the fellowship hall if you want to join us. Wednesday morning, the men get together at 6.30 until 7.15 for a time of devotion and fellowship. Uh, if you can't make that, the studies are online, both in text and in audio format. Wednesday night, our Ignite service, wonderful, great midweek time of refreshment and encouragement. Uh, we'd love to invite you to that. If you can't come every Wednesday, come whenever you can. That's as far ahead as I want to look, really, because I, I really believe that the Lord is coming back. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.